It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. I'm Teresa. And I'm Colleen. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. We're on episode 141, and I'm so excited that I don't have to do it by myself. <laughs> Hello. back. How are yes. you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Good. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, I had a surgery, which is the first part of my cochlear implant. So trigger warning, a little surgery yeah. if you if you don't like that. But And explain yeah. what that is, because I was telling mm. a friend, I'm like, what's that? What's a cochlear? Okay. So... <laughs> Basically, I lost my hearing overnight about two years ago. They don't know why. Something killed the little hairs in my head. Um, Hairs in my ear. Possibly in my head. I mean, who knows? (laughs) But I was 100% deaf overnight. And so um, one thing that I didn't realize is I did get hearing aids. And they are awesome if you have something to amplify. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So they're great if you already have some hearing, mm-hmm. then the hearing aids will amplify what you have. But if you have zero hearing, there's mm-hmm. nothing to amplify, yeah. right? That makes sense. Right. Um, originally, I talked about having a cochlear implant with my doctor. And because words don't sound exactly the same, he was hesitant to do it on one side. He said hmm. he thought it would be hard. Mm-hmm. So I decided to get a second opinion. Which I'm glad you did. Yep. I actually went to a specialist. It's called an otolaryngologist. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's like a word for the spelling bee. Yes, yes, yes. And he does a ton of one-sided cochlear implants. Oh, good, good. So I went through the testing for that. Even though we already knew I was 100% deaf, yeah. <laughs> they still have to test it and yeah. prove it. So I went through the testing and I definitely met the criteria because I think it's 60% mm-hmm. and I'm 100%. Yeah. So basically for a cochlear implant, what they first did is opened me up behind my ear, shaved me down mm-hmm. a little bit, you guys, on my well, hair. <laughs> I was a little concerned about that. You can't tell unless you get up really close and inspect. Yeah. <laughs> and they kind of went down on my skull a little bit. They put a little magnet there. And they put some wiring into my ear, you Mm -hmm. know, all the way to my eardrum, back right in there. And I'm healing from that. I'm doing pretty good. Sometimes my balance is a little odd. I can imagine. um, Yeah. Didn't have to do, didn't deal with too much nausea. Mm -hmm. So that was really good Good, because that was my concern. And what Um, about like vertigo? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes more just generally nausea and like Mm -hmm. a loss of, momentary loss of balance. Mm. I guess is what I would say. So basically that's step one. You heal from that. And then you've probably seen little kids with cochlears and you don't even Mm -hmm. know it. Usually theirs have little flashing lights. (laughs) (laughs) I see older people with cochlears. So I'll just have um, a little round item on the side of my head. Basically that's attaching to the magnet, dealing, you know, attaching also to those wires. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be able to hear. But... To put this in perspective, it would be like you had a cast on your arm for two years. You can't just automatically go back to using that arm, right? It would be atrophied. You would have to do some therapy. And that's basically what happens with my ear Mm -hmm. is that it kind of has cobwebs in it. It hasn't been used in two years. Two years, yeah. When I first start, it will just be hearing squeaks and pops and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. 
and then as I listen to podcasts yeah. and and do some <laughs> that other is her therapy. I know yeah. and For do some reals. other kind of therapy that yeah. it, that they'll have pro- mostly online mm-hmm. listening to things I will slowly get hopefully that hearing back mm-hmm. on my left How side exciting. so that's what I've yeah. been doing good, these good. last couple weeks yeah. so basically I get turned on <laughs> on August 9th so Pretty I'll get soon. the other piece. Yeah. Yes. Good, good, good. So my husband's going to come with me that day because um, for those of you that aren't in Oregon, it's about a 20-minute drive to my doctor's office mm-hmm. in Northwest Portland. And, you know, I was kind of concerned about that day how I'll feel. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of unknowns. Right. I mean, this was your first surgery. This was my yeah. first surgery so, ever. Like, this is a big deal. <laughs> it felt like a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> my family took good care of me. but. Good. Yeah, so yeah. I just said I, I'd like you to come to this one because I just thought, well, like, I have a headache. Or, yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a process. One other really cool blessing that has happened is my doctor originally told me that most insurance companies will only um, will take nine months to answer mm-hmm. and go through multiple denials. So of a one sided, and I did get multiple denials. In fact, my insurance company said your right ear is pretty good. <laughs> so, oh, that's so frustrating. I know. But pretty my, good. It's pretty good. But my doctor kept on, He and he had told me, like, don't worry. You're mm-hmm. going to get a denial. We're going to keep going. And it actually only took four months. Oh, good. So I felt like I was shocked the when lottery. they called yeah. me and said it had been approved. Yeah. I was speechless, which you know is <laughs> <laughs> shocking. But I, I literally was speechless. It took my breath away. Oh, so And so they were good. able to get me in yeah. within, like, it was, I don't know, it was like two or three weeks. Really fast, me. I it feel like. pretty fast. Yeah. So, and we're actually going to talk about the invention of cochlear implants a little bit later. I'm excited. It was so cool to learn about this person yeah. that invented cochlears. Yeah. I'm excited because I'm going to finish talking about, I couldn't fit it all in one time. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> no. Good. Retired SEAL Admiral Bill McRaven. He had a 37-year career in the Navy. Okay. He was the commando that served the Elite SEAL Team 6 before he was fired by the unit's commander. Following his firing, McRaven rose through the ranks again, eventually commanding the Joint Special Operations Command. While he served alongside America's most elite fighters, he oversaw the capture of Saddam Hussein, the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips. Wow. And the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden. This guy is just... Amazing, and I talked about his commencement speech where it all kind of started. Oh, okay. Um, so anyway, I pointed out last week that I love this guy. <laughs> love this guy. I have a the, lot of respect for these people. Yes, I for really sure. do. Just even the training to get there. Yeah. to me is like yeah. respect. insane. Yes, but from the moment I heard his commencement speech at the University of Texas, giving them life lessons that he had learned as a Navy SEAL, that evolved into his book titled "Make Your Bed: Little Things That Can Change Your Life." And maybe the world. I'm a firm bed maker. (laughs) And so is he. And because you'd get in trouble, like, if you didn't have it crisp. Yes. It's a short read, and I feel like everyone should read that book. But I listened to an interview interview with Admiral McRaven, and he was discussing the importance of preparation. Okay. When he was planning the raid to get bin Laden, the team had contingency plan after contingency plan after, you know, because they wanted to be prepared. From what I remember, too, they had almost built a house. Yeah. Replicate. Yes. Yeah, the the compound that he was in. 
and um, like four months of training and planning and preparing. It just blows my mind. Um, I need to watch some of the movies that are related to this because yeah, I'm Zero just Dark by, Thirty. Yeah, that's what they mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So he knows the importance of being prepared. They went in with Plan A, B, mm-hmm. C, and D. <laughs> you know, they knew how to respond when things went wrong. You must prepare knowing that things will likely go wrong, and it's vital to have another game plan. Do you remember when they were landing and one of the choppers no. broke down? No, n- not except for his book. Yeah, oh, I didn't know okay. any of this. Yeah. And, yeah. But they had it figured out. Correct. Yeah. And I remember they thinking, planned on it. Wow. Yeah, they just, just kept that, going. That's right. Yeah. They just had a plan. Because they knew. Like you, it just made me think of yeah, like plan just, K. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one, one of the yeah, choppers exactly. goes down. <laughs> no. I yeah. just point that out because so much of his advice goes back to being prepared. Right. Putting your head down, doing the work. So I was shocked to hear that he hadn't finished that famous speech that everyone loved until about an hour before wow. the graduation ceremony. <laughs> It wasn't that he hadn't prepared it. He actually started it at least a month before graduation, but he had, you know, started to go through it a couple days before. So he, he started reading it again on the Wednesday before the commencement speech on was due on Saturday, and he just wow. didn't feel like it worked. He tossed it and asked his wife for advice. They're quite the team, something I so admire, both he and his wife. After expressing the only area he knew was related to his time related to Navy SEAL training, after expressing the only area he he was comfortable with and knew was his experience as a Navy SEAL. Sure. That wasn't something that most of us can relate to. Right. It's all like movies for me. Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> or maybe something yeah. I've read or a podcast yeah. that I've listened to. Yeah. Other than that, I don't I know. have any real world experience. I don't either. Experience. His um, wife, George Ann, suggested that he talk about that. And that's how the famous speech and book that followed came about. I guess the school was calling him like an hour before looking for the speech. They, they oh, yeah, because usually they have to approve it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm sure they were shocked and a little nervous to hear that he was still finishing it up. He had majored in journalism because okay. he said he wasn't good at math and other things. So, But he was really good with words. Right. So he's definitely, that speech shows he's good with words, both written and spoken. I also noted last week that I'm a total fangirl just from the fact that he pointed out It's a Wonderful Life in his book. Oh, I love it. Um, (laughs) My favorite holiday movie. I talked about that in episode 61, but Admiral McRaven brought it up because in that movie, George Bailey sees how many people he actually influenced throughout his life. Mm -hmm. His angel, Clarence, shows him what the world would be like without George Bailey, and it's a grim picture. Right. Right. I should say spoiler alert here as I'm talking about it. If you haven't well, seen it, well, what is it from the 40s or 50s? Well, yes. I mean, that's on you if you haven't seen it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you really need to. And it's to. on TV 162 yeah. times. Yeah. So. Yeah. You need to. <laughs> um, Mary, his wife, never married. She was lonely. The town was bought up by a Scrooge-like character, Mr. Potter. Right. His brother. Um, yeah, because there wasn't George there to offer the loan for the house. Right. Well, right. his brother would have died. Yes, exactly. And the pharmacist. Oh, yeah, and the pharmacist mm-hmm. with, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, so all these things, that and trickling down with Jordan not being there, with his brother dying in that sledding accident, yep. then he wouldn't have saved all those men in World War II That's with right. that um, flying mission. That's right. So the, um, that transport so ship, many all of them died. Yes, exactly. Right. So... 
for McRaven, his George Bailey was a high school football coach. What's interesting is that McRaven didn't play football. He was in track. <laughs> so he was trying to beat the school record in the mile. This is his senior year. The record was a 432, and his second to the last race, he was super discouraged when he finished with a 437. Five seconds. Okay, still amazing. <laughs> it is super amazing. And but five, I can understand yeah. being so close. Yes. Oh, um, and it sounds really close, but at the same time, five seconds is an eternity right, in, in running. running. Mm-hmm. So... You think about how close it is, like at the Olympics. I know. Like I know. Yeah. Nuts. Exactly. Yeah. The night before his last race, he got a phone call from Coach Jerry Turnbow, the assistant football coach. Keep in mind, McRaven grew up in Texas, where football was where it was at. Yes. Not running around an oval. No. <laughs> so he was shocked that Coach Turnbow even knew who he was, and that phone call made such a huge difference in his life. Knowing that Coach Turnbow believed he could do it was all that he needed. He went out there and beat the record. And that wasn't what meant the most to him, since the record would fall the following year when somebody beat him. (laughs) But at least for that year, he had it. He was just so touched that Turnbow would call him to tell him that he could do it, that he believed in him. Turnbow was was his George Bailey. He felt like his life was forever changed because of that simple gesture. And it just, it made me think... What simple things can we do to impact the people around us? Right. Right. So after college, he joined the Navy and eventually started SEAL training. This was at a time when it was somewhat transitioning from the frogmen, like when they were frogmen. Oh, interesting. Um, Okay. And it was way before regular civilians knew anything about the SEAL program. Okay. People just didn't know about it. And that was apparent with one of his fellow classmates. McRaven said one of the guys he got to know really well during Hell Week was a bit of a hippie. (laughs) And clearly he was an exceptional athlete because he still was, he was there and had made it that far. But at one point he told McRaven that he couldn't believe they were being trained to kill people. Um, in the military. <laughs> so, um, needless to say, the guy graduated, mm. but he went the civilian route and became a chiropractor. I think that sounds good. <laughs> I just think it's so funny that he wouldn't know that that's... Right, that's kind of part but, of it, yeah. unfortunately. But I, but I thought that was yeah. adorable. Yeah. There was another guy in training who had... I mean, he was working on his third hell week. Oof. Not because he had previously failed, but because he was crazy. Those are in my words. I mean, he just... <laughs> Who would want to endure that three times? Mm -hmm. So once would be more than enough. I mean, that's too much for me. But at one point they were on the beach, and he was shivering so much, this guy laid on top of him just to try to help him generate some heat. Oh, my gosh. These guys were freezing all the time. The things they had to endure during Hell Week were pure torture, and I'm sure they are still today. My goddaughter is a Marine, and when she did the crucible, Mm -hmm. just... What that entailed was crazy. Oh, my gosh. I know. Yeah. I was just like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, and I but know they, this is even more intense. Yeah. So, it's it's pretty amazing what they can do. Yeah. For sure. They were constantly cold, wet, sleep-deprived. Hungry. Oh, yeah, hungry, too. <laughs> Last week was Shark Week. Okay. <laughs> I always wonder if people also watch that. Yes. I want to point out that Shark Week wasn't worth watching several years ago. Oh. Because they made things like the Megalodon. Oh, Did you ever I've watch never, any of those? I've okay. never watched it. Sharknado. They made these fake movies that didn't have any like science. Like type Oh, stuff? totally. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you'd get to the end of it, and they'd be like, well, this might have been what happened. So oh. you watch that whole thing thinking it was science, and then it was 
you know, possible oh. one one possibility. See, I'm kind of a documentary junkie, yeah. so I want it to be more documentary yeah. based. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want Shark Week yeah. to be. Yeah. So previously it was a total waste of time in the last few years, but um, so I didn't watch it in protest. But <laughs> recently I got pulled back in because they have more science based documentaries again, mm. new ones. Yes. All that to say, after watching about the Makos, the Whites, they're no longer Great Whites, just Whites. Okay, okay. And Bull Sharks, just to name a few, there's no way I would do a 15-mile night swim. Oh, no. I mean, guys quit right then and there, just knowing that they were going to be swimming in the dark in shark-infested water. And they told them that there were sharks in the water. Absolutely no way I would do that. Mm -mm. I also wouldn't do well with the instructors screaming at me, calling me names. Mm -mm. Blasting water down my throat with a fire hose. But, I mean, they have to prepare them for being... For anything. Yeah, exactly. Mental mm-hmm. and just all of that. Mm-hmm. That these men and women go through that is just so incredibly courageous, particularly when it's to protect our freedoms. Yes. When the instructors would entice them with, you know, you can get dried off, you can get warm, <laughs> you can get a real meal. If just five of you will quit, just five. Oh, my goodness. It would be so hard to not, you know, go ring the bell. I'll sign up. I'll volunteer. To quit. <laughs> yeah. I'll volunteer. But they, they worked with each other. They right. didn't want each other right. to give up. So no, it taught them I, to I stick together. Yeah. And I just, I imagine that made them extremely cl- close. Right. After experiencing that torture together. Right. One of his suggestions in life is to surround yourself with exceptional people. Listen and learn from them. It impressed me so much to hear his stories of times in the Situation Room at the White House. He ignores politics and focuses on what's right for our country. Mm -hmm. When they were going after alleged weapons of mass destruction and presented their game plan to the president, McRaven was super impressed that George W. Bush knew military strategy Mm -hmm. and, you know, stuff about bombs and military stuff from his days in the Navy. Right. He also commented that it was Hillary Clinton, I'm assuming when she was Secretary of State, who was hawkish. I mean, she asked very pointed, very specific questions and knew her stuff. That's kind of what I want the people in the situation room to be like. Yeah. (laughs) I know. That me too. So this made me feel better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She asked him the most pointed questions, and he respected her for that. Right. She wanted to know how many missions he had done before. And, you know, he's doing the math in his head, and he, he guessed like a 1,000. And he's <laughs> like, it was at least that. He applauded Obama for making the decision to go and get Osama bin Laden. When they went on that mission, it wasn't the only thing going on that night. Right. I mean, we know how it ended, so right. it's easy to say, oh, yeah, they needed to go do it. But they weren't sure. And, you know, they had other missions going on that night. It was still business as usual. Well, and if you watch Zero Dark Thirty, it was um, very, like, they didn't take it lightly, Mm -hmm. I guess is the word I'm trying Mm -hmm. to say. The woman that was kind of leading the charge who found this, Mm -hmm. like, every day, you know, it's 30 days. Mm -hmm. I mean, they don't take Mm -hmm. it lightly, I guess is my point. There's a lot going on, and they don't take it lightly. Well, and you never know who's... I mean, he talked right. about when they were coming back, they were very happy to be alive and coming back. Correct. But still. And all of them made it. Yeah. 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 Pretty amazing with I that, too. I was amazed. Yes. So, apparently that same night, there's still like 10 missions going on yes. at the same time. So, they still have all these, you know, other things going on. Right. While they didn't discuss it, McRaven pointed out that there was no way that Obama couldn't have considered, was kind of worried that it would might end up like the mess that Jimmy Carter had with the Iran hostage crisis where 
eight servicemen and one Iranian civilian were killed in that rescue attempt. Right. But the CIA intelligence said that the man in the compound that they had found, Mm -hmm. he said that there was, and it was weird that he worded it this way, 60 to 40% chance, I would think it'd be 40 (laughs) to 60% chance, which is still not, I don't like those Mm, percentage, that that this guy would be, that the pacer, as they called him, would Mm -hmm. be Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. I'm so relieved I don't have to make those decisions. Right. McRaven's point with all of this was how these leaders listened to all these experts. You know, he listened. Ultimately, it would be their decision, obviously, but they put a lot of thought into it. Kind of like you said with that lady leading the charge. They Mm -hmm. didn't take it lightly. Mm -mm. They didn't make rash decisions, and they truly listened to the advice from multiple experts. Right. I know that I need to slow down and listen more. Me too. And sadly, anyone who knows me would probably agree. Same, same. (laughs) That's why I love you. Um, He thought Obama's decision in 2011 to go get bin Laden was, in his opinion, the greatest decision in modern history. He knew that it had risks and was a bold move, taking teams 162 miles into Pakistan, particularly since they had nuclear weapons. But as we saw, it proved to be the right decision. Yeah, I mean, they really won't, weren't supposed to be in Pakistan. No. I mean, they, they kind of had to fly under yeah. the radar. And yeah. It was kind of, I think they told them after the fact. By the way, yeah. <laughs> from yeah. what I remember, uh, we were just in your country. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a big deal. McRaven was super impressed with CIA Director Leon Panetta. His decision to call in the military to help get bin Laden. I guess the CIA had gotten the intelligence. And McRaven said that the CIA had people that could likely could have orchestrated sure. their own mission. Sure. But Panetta was a team player. And it, he wasn't doing it for the accolades. He was doing it. It was the right decision. Like, who's really the best yeah. to handle yeah. this? Let's, like, let's, let's put let's our get him in there. Yeah. pride aside and say who's really prepared to do this. Yeah. And who's trained. Which helps yeah. off. Yeah. Totally. I agree. Before McRaven had helped plan the mission to get bin Laden, he had also oversaw the rescue of Captain Phillips in 2009 when he was held hostage by the Somali pirates. The calmness in his voice as he talks about these very serious situations amazes me. It's no wonder he's a four-star right. admiral. He <laughs> analyzes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Something I wouldn't know. No, no, because I get crazy. Yep. He analyzes and looks at the whole picture. When dealing with the pirates, he took notes, you know, of everything, right. trying to figure out why they were doing it. I don't know that story. I know it's a Tom Hanks movie. That's, I need to watch that, too. Yeah. yeah it's another one. Yeah. But now it makes me want to watch yeah. it even more. So. I was hoping to watch it before this week. But Shark Week. <laughs> Shark, Shark Week happened. And I can't do both. So. Yep. But he wanted to figure out, you know, what their motive was. In knowing the answer, that might come, you know, help them figure out a resolution. Yep. For casualties to not take place. Add to his resume that he spent 30 days monitoring Saddam Hussein upon his capture. He made sure he was treated fairly with four meals a day and books to read. What he didn't allow was conversation. Hmm. He didn't want him to have the satisfaction, and he told his men, anyone who was dealing with Saddam Hussein, to not engage in conversation with him. When he went into the room, Saddam Hussein would, you know, stand up, like, you know, giving him... Like, they were going to talk and mm-hmm. whatnot. And he was like, no, you're not, not saying that you're not human to me, but you're not at the same level. I also think that Saddam Hussein can ha- has a lot of influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure these men are 
you know, they've got nerves of steel. Yeah. But maybe if it was somebody else, he could easily worm his way yeah. in. Maybe. Yeah. In talking yeah. or finding out yeah. details about their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just never know. Yeah. They might. It might be unsafe. Well, he, uh, yeah. I think you're so. you're probably on to something there, too. Yeah. The first few days he was confined, he remained completely arrogant. He was the tyrant that they expected. Interesting. Then McRaven pointed out that as the days went on and Hussein became just this pathetic old man. Yep. He didn't have people waiting on him hand and foot, and he didn't have the power like he had had when he ruled Iraq. He just looked like a tired old man. McRaven compared that to Nelson Mandela. For Hussein, he broke right away when he was incarcerated. Days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't take long because he was evil and corrupt. Mm-hmm. He didn't have really the mental fortitude. No. So he just, so. he broke, I mean, he caved right away. Right. Whereas Nelson Mandela, a man with great integrity, actually gained strength and focus in his 30 years behind bars. I thought that was an interesting contrast. Yes. That he pointed that out. McRaven had 30 days to watch this former dictator um, just deteriorate. Eventually, he was tried and hung in his country. With so many accomplishments, it's hard to believe this man has had anything but success. But as I noted earlier, he's had his fair share of uh, he had his fair share of invitations to the circus. That two-hour extra calisthenics oh, at Navy oh, SEAL training that okay. they had to do. So if you didn't hit certain times, you were on an invitation list. You were invited um, to the circus. An invitation you don't want. Yes, exactly. And and it was posted, so everybody knew who was invited to the circus. So he noted that the extra training made the trainees stronger in the long run. Sure. He also got fired from that job that I noted at in 1983. Um, He was relieved of his duties with his squadron. And because it's such a small operation... Everyone knew about it. Sure. He was embarrassed. Of course. He considered quitting, but once again, Georgianne was his rock. She pointed out that he had never quit before, and he shouldn't start now. With that, he doubled down and got through it. If this guy has failures, we all have failures. Of course. I mean, the things this guy has done. But Graven pointed out that we need to recognize the failure and have the will to get past the rough spots. And with that, don't look back too often. Right. I also really respect a habit he picked up from a neighbor he grew up with. They were both from the San Antonio area, and these young men would both make their way into the military. His former neighbor was, uh, I think, in the Air Force, and he was 10 to 12 years older than him. But he must have run into someone that knew about McRaven in the SEAL training. And after hearing good things about him, he sent a letter to McRaven's parents sharing the accolades. So So he copies that practice today, since it means so much more to congratulate the parents on the child's performance. The soldier still hears about it, and it makes all the more meaningful coming from, you know, their parents or the special people in their lives. Right. So sometimes he sends it to the wife. He just makes sure that they know. In Sea Stories, McRaven talked about growing up, hearing the stories from the greatest generation, stories of war and heroism. He was a military kid himself, and he was inspired and in awe of these men and had the utmost admiration and respect for them. At the same time, he's watched young men and women moving through the military in modern times. He shared story after story of hope, and this guy believes that our men and women now are every bit as good as the soldiers before and more. 
He and his wife often visited injured soldiers in the hospital. That would be a part of the job I would not like. That would be really hard. One day he met with a 24-year-old man who had a quadruple amputee from an IED. Oh my gosh. I know. He said he, he looked terrible. And he must have read it on his face. Right. McRaven tried to keep, you know, a strong presence sure. and look and be supportive. But somehow the young soldier could read his face. He looked up and said he didn't have it as bad as some of these guys. Okay. He reminded him, don't have it as bad as some of these guys. The guy is, you know, right. all Arms his limbs. Lengths. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This guy has lost all four limbs. He was shredded apart anywhere that his Kevlar hadn't protected. And yet he said he didn't have as, as bad as some of the guys. McGraven asked if there was anything he could do to help the soldier in any way. And like every soldier he encountered after being injured that he visited, they all asked at some point when they could be back with their team. That's wow. how dedicated they were. Right. Right. It's their family. Yeah, it is. So when Mc, when McGraven left that day, the soldier told him that he was going to be just fine. And I, I, I mean, I just definitely can't even... stuck with him. Right. Right. It's going to be just fine. It's be just fine. Apparently in 2012, this gentleman had a bilateral transplant and made it back to Hawaii to see his guys. Now he uses his experience to help others who also have lost limbs. Talk about an amazing attitude. Serious right. heart right there. And someday we need to do a podcast on him. Yes. I need, okay. to, I need to find out who he yes. is. And that's what McRaven made clear. There were so many stories of young people doing amazing things like the generations before them. In his mind and mine, they were even better because they don't see color or orientation the same. They're optimistic and actually analyze and question things and are still willing to take risks for our country. It was so incredibly refreshing to get that take since we're constantly bombarded with negativity. Yes, we are. All over. There are good and bad things about every generation, but we accomplish a lot more together when we accept that and work as a team. I love so much about this guy that I really think what it comes down to is his unwavering desire to do the right thing for his country and humankind. Right. Except that we all make mistakes and grow from them. Know that you're going to fail at times and get over it. Learn from those failures and never lose hope. Admiral McRaven doesn't see left or right, red or blue, Democrat or Republican. He sees Americans and wants them to come to the table to make our country better. He's able to bring so many diverse people together to make the world a better, safer place. I'm so grateful Coach Turnbow made that phone call. I know. <laughs> Treat people with respect, put your head down, prepare, stay optimistic, and work hard, and never give up an opportunity to inspire someone. I mean, he just has so many, so many lessons. Right. He also has a children's book. I, My brother, I hope, is not going to listen to this episode because Wells is going to get this for Christmas. <laughs> make Your Bed with Skipper the Seal. It is like Make Your Bed. It's got the 10 things from the Navy <laughs> Seals, but I it's might need this book too. <laughs> adorable. Yes. Anyone who's having a baby needs this book. Um, also, the Hero Code Lessons, Learn from Lives Lived Well. My favorite has been the sea stories, my life in special operations. He also has the wisdom of the bullfrog, leadership made simple, but not easy. That's for leaders. Okay. So I, I, that one I didn't really get into, but um, all of his other books, just, I could read over and over and over again. So just love that man. It's great. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm going to talk about Dr. House, which I thought was so funny because of that show, House. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> but this is the real House? Dr. Yeah. House. Okay. <laughs> uh, that, as we talked about earlier, that was the inventor of the cochlear implant. Mm, okay. He was born on December 1st, 1923 in Kansas City, Missouri, and he moved to Whittier, California when he was three years old. And this is what I thought was so funny. He basically completed dental degrees oh. at Whittier College and University of Southern California. And then he went to Berkeley and he got his doctorate in dentistry. Okay. <laughs> which I thought was so interesting. And then he served as a dental officer in the United <laughs> States Navy Dental oh, Corps. Okay. After so he matches with Admiral McCarthy. Yes, yes. After serving in the Navy, he earned a medical degree from Southern California. Okay. And his older half-brother, Howard House, was also a physician but was focused in audiology. Mm. O- I'm sorry, otology, which is O-T-O-L-O-G-Y. It's kind of hard for me to pronounce, okay. but it's otology. Okay. Founding the House Ear Institute in 1946. And he just decided, and it doesn't really say why, Mm -hmm. but I I kind of think maybe he was inspired. You know, I feel like some, I mean, this is just what I believe. There's a higher power that, hey, you need to go this way. And so he decided to join his brother in his practice and adopt the same focus of audiology, which is your ears. Mm -hmm. So, and this was really cool. I found an interview that the Oregonian did, which is our local newspaper here in Oregon. Wow. In December of 2012. And they talked to Dr. House because he had actually moved to Aurora, Oregon. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Nick has yeah. flown into Aurora. Aurora. Yeah. I think so, yeah. too. I remember that. And he is actually known as the father of neuroautology. So that's nerves of the ear or... Oh, okay. I think. I should have looked that up. But it's so cute. He lives in Aurora down a long gravel driveway um, farmland surrounds his manufactured home, and a California license plate propped up against his garage presents the only hint of his story. On it, the words, all here. Aww. I thought that was cute. <laughs> I just love that. Play on words. Yeah. That's cute. Um, at the time, he was 88 years old, and he was revered for his treatments of inner ear disorders. He's most known for creating the first cochlear implant in 1961. So this has been around wow. a while. Yep. I know it seems like people don't know yeah. a lot about it, and uh-huh. I didn't either. But anyway, it's giving deaf people the ability to hear. His career is actually packed with other inventive accomplishments, each impressive in its own right. They're some really cool ones. So after he joined his brother's otology practice, he was inspired to focus solely on ear surgery when two families visited him with with toddlers that they suspected were deaf. Mm. He said, I thought it was such a travesty. He began experimenting on volunteer deaf patients, exposing their inner ears to electric current and discovering they heard sounds. Oh. Right. So he then worked with an engineer to develop a wearable device, and in 1961 installed the first cochlear implant in a deaf patient. The long-term effect was unknown. I was told by authorities in the field of ear research that electric current would further destroy the ear. It was How a risk. did they know that? I know. Yeah. And he talks about that more. It was mm-hmm. a risk he just felt like he had to pursue. And 11 years went by, and House, Dr. House and Urban, this is Jack Urban, he was the engineer that helped him with the electronics, um, smoothed out the problems with the original product to make it more biocompatible and a practical device. And it was actually approved by the FDA in 1984. I loved when he talks about, I 
I got choked up reading this because I understand how this feels. Yeah. So sorry. So eighty four. So, he's how yeah. old was he in eighty? Like he still was in nineteen twenty three. He was sixty one. Okay, so probably still practicing. still practicing, yeah. but still kind of maybe at the little bit mm-hmm. end of his career. Um, he said many broke down in tears at their first muddled sounds, oh. and he checked in with them through the years, and they still could hear. That's amazing. I know. So. Um, he said, I felt like it was a wonderful way to live, to have patients that really appreciated what you did for them. But he said the responses from fellow doctors stung. And he said they all said, you're money hungry. I know. So That's interesting terrible. to me. I know. I know. I he mean, said, he's changing lives. He's changing I mean, lives. Like giving people life, basically. Yes. So that they can. And he said, I, he said he was especially criticized when he started doing implants on children. Mm-hmm. You know, that they, he was money hungry. Yeah, he was money or? hungry, and uh, people would basically say, "My goodness, you know, you're really taking advantage of them." These parents just will do anything to get their child hearing. Yeah, they will do. Anything. Yeah, they will. Yeah. Wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, these are a couple other things he excelled at: developing a new approach to removing an acoustic neuroma, a tumor on the nerve that connects the ear to the brain. Hmm. This is an interesting one because I know a lot of people with this disease, but he said creating, um, it said creating a new surgical procedure for Meniere's disease, an inner ear disorder that causes dizziness and hearing loss. I know a couple of people that actually have that Uh disease. That's actually what I thought at first that Mm -hmm. I had. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, Mm -hmm. but um, it's actually a a thing that still people are diagnosed with Mm -hmm. today. Meniere's disease. Meniere's. Yep. I have a friend that might have that. I need to write that down. Yes. So, like I previously said, House had developed a surgical treatment to relieve the symptoms of Meniere's disease, which mm-hmm. causes severe vertigo and hearing mm-hmm. loss. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult. Astronaut Alan Shepard, the first American in space, developed the disease and consulted Dr. House for a fix. Wow. Without it, he couldn't fly to the moon. Because, you know, those guys have yeah. to be kind of yeah. like in top physical yeah. shape. Yeah. The doctor's operation rid Shepard of his attacks of vertigo and nausea, and and within a year, he was returned to flight status. Good. That's awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. The morning after takeoff, the houses, so he was married. Mm-hmm. His wife's name was June. The houses were invited to a mission control for a phone conversation oh with Shepard. The astronaut was three-quarters of the way to the moon. Oh, <laughs> that was so that's cute. So fun. <laughs> Dr. House said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm fine, Bill. I'm talking to you on the ear you operated on. I know. I was like, I loved it. Afterward, Dr. House's wife, June, joked, my God, Bill, wait until you get that phone bill. (laughs) I was like, that's so cute. (laughs) And in 2000, they moved to their Oregon farm, which was next door to their son. Yep. This was my favorite quote from the article. It was so cute. Several times each week. House enters his garage and walks into a makeshift office filled with black and white framed photos, certificates, and a flat screen computer. A quote on the wall reads, everything I did in my life that was worthwhile, I caught hell for. Isn't that kind of true, though? Yes. Yeah. And um, also, um, when I was putting this together, he, too, has a memoir. It's called The Struggles of a Medical Innovator. So I'm going to try to be more like you and read (laughs) read the book. (laughs) So this was really awesome, yeah, and, and it just it inspired me even further. And that he about, helped Alan Shepard? Yes, I mean, it just was so inspirational to wow. me, and I just feel extreme gratitude for and Dr. House. And now you're tied with I'm tied, tied with Dr. House. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so awesome. I love it. Cool. Cool. 
It matters not your gender, your ethnic or religious background, your orientation, or your social status. Our struggles in this world are similar, and the lessons to overcome those struggles and to move forward changing ourselves and changing the world around us will apply equally to all. Admiral William McRaven. We want to hear from you. Please email us your thoughts, story ideas, or just say hi at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com. Tell us about someone inspiring in your life and like or subscribe to our podcast. It helps us out and helps others find us. You can find more information about us at our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Follow us on Instagram at tangentialinspirationpodcast or find us on Facebook. Have a great week.